0: Thank mm-hmm. you.
1: Welcome to the Strange Brew podcast. That was the Beach Boys and Surfer Girl. I've got a huge honor today to welcome David Marks, Beach Boys founder member, guitar and vocals, well, <laughs> obviously one of the greatest bands in history. And uh, we're here to talk about a range of material Beach Boys, David's projects and bands, and bring us up to date talking about his latest activities like the Surf City All-Stars. First of all, a huge welcome, David. Thank you, Jason. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. Brilliant. Before uh, speaking to you, I read your brilliant book with John Stebbings, The Lost Beach Boys.
2: Yeah, any brilliance in there would be uh, attributed to John.
1: (laughs) (laughs) One of the brilliant things about that book, it shows how your life in your very early teen years was... Very intimately intertwined with the Wilson family, wasn't it?
2: Well, not only teen years, but uh, I actually moved in right across the street from the Wilson family when I was seven years old. And my first introduction into the neighborhood was uh, Carl Wilson and Dennis Wilson, who were, I don't know, let's say maybe seven and (laughs) (laughs) ten, or I don't know, but they were throwing garbage across the street because... Our street was the border between Inglewood and Hawthorne, Mm. the two different cities, corporate cities. So, But now Inglewood is part of Hawthorne. But back then, they were going, Inglewood sucks, (laughs) Hawthorne rules. And they were throwing all kinds of car parts and garbage across the street. (laughs) And so so that's how we bonded. Strange, isn't it?
1: Wow. There's so many interesting aspects to to those years. You actually learned guitar from... John Walker, especially famous over here in Britain, of the Walker brothers. That's true. My
2: mother was friends with his mother. And so um, Johnny's mother forced him to, you know, show me a couple of guitar chords. (laughs) But I remember the first time I saw John and his sister Judy, they were up on the stage at the Hermosa Biltmore in Hermosa Beach, California, doing a little concert for the book club that my mom and his mom belonged to. And I was maybe nine or so. And ten maybe. And I saw his Stratocaster and I don't know, something clicked inside my soul. And um anyway, Johnny he taught me some stuff and I, I uh transferred it over to Carl. Carl and I both got guitars around the same time. I was 10, he was about 12, and so every day after school, would practice at my house, listening to records, learning Chuck Berry, Larry, just all these guitar riffs, mainly, and all the surf genre stuff, and um, so uh, yeah, John was uh, actually connected with Richie Valens. Oh. Uh, he was a pallbearer for Richie's funeral, God bless him, and um, he was giving us the stuff that he was learning from Richie Hallens, which was at that time when you're a 9, 10 year old, was like, you know, king of rock and roll to me. Anyway, that guitar sound just never never left me.
1: As well as learning guitar, you were hearing Brian Wilson across the street on piano and, and, and some of the, the early steps he was doing for the melodies on, on material like Surfer Girl.
2: Yeah, at the same time, that me and Carl were practicing our guitar like Brian was at the piano studying four freshman harmonies. He was maybe a junior or a senior in high school at the time, and he was uh, taking music classes. So he was pretty up on Bach and the four freshmen. And he fell in love with those harmony, the jazz harmonies that the four freshmen would sing. And obviously, you know, he translated that into Beach Boys music. And he heard Carl and I doing those Richie Valens strumming things. Like, oh, Donna, that kind of stuff. Hmm. And so he said, wow, that would great. be great on Surfer Girl. So he en- enlisted Carl and I to play strumming guitars on Surfer Girl. And uh, that was one of the first songs he wrote.
1: The first big hit for the Beach Boys, certainly nationwide in the U.S., the way that you helped or brought in that tougher guitar sound to the group with Carl Really lifted the sound of the band? Well you know, it wasn't really a surf sound. Surf and
2: safari was our first national hit.
1: Yeah.
2: And it was more of a Chuck Berry kind of thing. Dennis Wilson, Carl Wilson, and myself would get together at the high school, Hawthorne High, and play actual surf music, which um occurred by accident. But it was mostly instrumental and it was just buried in reverb. Yeah. You know, like Dick Dale and the Ventures, and um, we were studying that kind of stuff at the time before Brian became, you know, proficient at his catalog. So, yeah, the surf music was an accident. Uh, Like the Ventures didn't know they were a surf band, and Dick Dale didn't know. (laughs) Well, Dick Dale knew, but the kids would use their music to watch Bruce's uh, surf movies at their high school auditorium, and they would just pick music to play along with it because there was no sound. And they would pick the ventures mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And so the genre was born and then you would right after, almost at the same time, the Marquettes and Dick Dale and you know, all the offshoots of the surf instrumental genre were born. Mm-hmm. And um and that's what Carl and Dennis I would and I were doing when we were you know, before the Brian Wilson surge of genius. And um so when the Beach Boys came out with Surf and Safari the lyrics were definitely surf and created the fantasy of, you know, let's go to California and be in the beach in sun. But the actual sound, I think, yeah. was borrowed from rock and roll like Chuck Berry and stuff like that. But we had our own interpretation of it, which became sort of unique, especially with Brian's jazz harmony arrangements on the vocals. I mean, it just yeah. was a unique thing. Nowadays, it's, you know, common Sound bit in 1962, I don't think anyone had heard anything quite like that before. That's why when the Beatles came out with their dry, you know, hollow body electric guitars, it was very foreign at first.
3: Mm.
2: But then when you got used to it, it was the best thing ever. (laughs) But we were used to hearing our guitars buried in reverb and the Beatles had this little dry kind of thing going. I actually met George Martin, oh. I think, who was the genius behind all those early Beatles records.
3: Let's go surfing now. Everybody's learning how. Come on, a fire with me.
1: in a way, the Beach Boys were certainly in the early years when you were in the group, in many ways were were more advanced than the Beatles. When you look at Lonely Sea, for example it's got a melancholia it's got the harmonies the arrangements uh, is just immaculate. You actually saw Brian and and Gary Usher actually write that didn't you?
2: Yeah, there's an interesting backstory to that. When the Wilsons were throwing car parts across the street there was a little guy named Greg Jones down the street, who was my age And he was riding his bike up and down the street. We became fast friends. And his cousin was Gary Usher from Boston. And when the Beach Boys happened several years later, Gary rushed out, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And I do remember sitting in the room with the two, Gary and Brian. And Gary said, here, I have an idea on the guitar I've been playing for a while. And it was the little arpeggiated thing that is kind of the basis of Lonely Sea. Yeah. And he just played it for me. He didn't have anything, just those chords. And Brian went, cool, I like that. I'll write some words. Right, 409 and a couple of other things. I remember 10 in the evening when Gary was revving up his motor in his Chevrolet. It wasn't a 409, I think it was a 356 or something, but the neighbors were all really pissed. And Brian had my tape recorder out on the corner to record this engine sound that ended up being the intro to 409.
0: Wow.
2: Yeah, the memories, some of them are still fresh. I have a couple of pink brain cells left, I guess. <laughs> She's real
3: fine, my 409, she's real fine, my 409, my 409, well I saved my pennies and I saved my dimes, giddy up, giddy up, 409, for I knew there would be a time, giddy up, giddy up, 409, when I would buy a brand. 409, 409. 409, 409. Giddy up, giddy up for old, giddy up, giddy up, giddy up for old 9 Giddy up for old, giddy up, giddy up, gide up Nothing can catch her, nothing can touch my phone. When I take her to the drag she really shines Giddy up, giddy up, 409 She always turns in the fastest time Giddy up, giddy up, 409 My four speed dual quad pause the traction 409 409, Giddy up, giddy up, giddy up, 409 Giddy up, giddy up, 409, giddy up, giddy up, 409. Giddy up, 409. can't get
0: nothing can touch
1: my What was also special in that period was the way that you and Carl complimented each other on guitar. You seem to have a, a real understanding with each other. when you look at surfing USA. It's just a, an amazing blend of guitar on that, for example.
2: Yeah, I was an only child, so I spent all my time at the Wilson's house. And um, Carl and I would you know, sneak off and smoke cigarettes and stuff. But when we played our guitars, well, let me start from the beginning. Yeah. Audrey Wilson, the mother of the Wilson brothers, she, uh, as a little girl, wanted to play the piano in the worst way, right? <sighs> but they couldn't afford one. Her family couldn't afford a piano. So what she did was she drew piano keys on the kitchen table and practiced that way. She knew where her fingers were going, but there was a sound. I'm sure she heard it in her head. And then when she finally got to a real piano, she actually was able to play. So what happened with the three Wilson boys and myself, she sat us all down and taught us how to play little riffs on the piano, the same ones. And I think that made us a little tighter as a band. And um, you know how the the brothers had a very special vocal blend because they had the same voice, they were brothers. And Carl and I had that kind of thing going on the guitars. We became one guitar, kind of, you know. He would take off and do a solo, and I would back him up with heavy, you know, 1-5 rhythm and stuff. I think that we had a connection above ourselves that, you know, joined our guitars. We were sitting down and studying those records and learning everything we could, and then um, when it blended with the band, um, Dennis didn't really care for Mm. music or whatever. He was out doing other stuff, racing cars, surfing, doing girls and stuff. And so Brian had to almost beat him up to get him music. And one day, Brian just handed him some drumsticks and Dennis didn't know from drums, Mm. but he ended up inventing his own style, which was emulated by very many popular people, you know, the who and stuff like that. uh, the bottom line is that every one of those Wilsons were a musical genius in their own right. Murray also, he played the organ and wrote songs. He wasn't too shabby, you know. And all three of the dentists didn't know it, that he was a musical genius. And he, he expressed some of that in his later years. Carl, of course, is one of the most stellar voices ever.
1: over 100 shows in 1963 alone and what were you 13 14 i remember having my 13th birthday at the studio
2: around three in the morning you know we were just celebrating but when i went out on my first tour with the beach boys i was 13 i guess i remember having my 14th birthday on the road in wheeling west virginia we played at an amusement park and the owner of the amusement park took us to his um, yacht club afterwards and um, celebrated my 14th birthday, I remember. I was on the road. And my 64th birthday was on the road also. <laughs> Had many birthdays on the road, actually. Kind of miss it. I hope this virus thing lifts pretty soon. So I think we're going to be able to go out and play for the people and make them happy yeah, again.
1: Definitely. it's a great story about when... Um you're recording the the surfer girl album with tracks like in my room where about the sessions they'd often go to early hours of the morning and you and and Dennis would, would go out for, for chili dogs. I thought was really evocative.
2: (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I don't know how that little secret got out, but when Brian was inspired, whether it be 2 AM or, you know, 4 PM, whatever he would act on that. And, we'd be off doing something stupid and he'd recruit us whether we liked it or not. He would threatened to punch us in the mouth if we didn't sing. Cause when he was inspired, he acted on it. And I believe that that's most of what Brian Wilson's genius, you know, when he heard it in his head, he knew how to manifest that. Uh, he went right into the studio before he forgot it, you know, and he got the band together and he knew how to do that. And his enthusiasm was just like, I've never seen such enthusiasm. He was just focused right on that. And he admits he was a conduit to God's work yeah. with all of his creativity, but we'd go in the studio sometimes three in the morning and Carl and I actually had to quit public school and go to private school, which didn't you know, pan out very well either. <laughs> well, we did make some really good social connections.
1: Mentioned about the number of shows you were recording. You were so young. It must have been such a pressurised environment. And then there's that story about you and the guys in the car with Murray Wilson... And you kind of saying, I quit the band and then Murray holds you to it.
2: Yeah, everybody quit the band every day. Yeah. <laughs> I think Brian quit the band a million times. You know, yeah. Dennis didn't, he didn't quit because he didn't consider himself even a member. Yeah. He'd be off doing everything else that uh, his big brother made him come and play drums and sing in the studio. But that happened to be a like a political move by an adult murray wilson who happened to be our manager at that time who was fired shortly after that by the way i didn't even know i had the power to fire murray wilson but yeah you know i loved the man because he was like my second father he taught me a lot and he was responsible for the beach boys res- success but yeah he had a, a dark side where he would deal money from children <laughs> but god bless him i think you know he's been forgiven and uh I quit in the car. We picked him up on, in the middle of one of our Midwestern tours because he heard that our manager that he had hired, who was a former manager of the ventures, actually, he was, you know, getting us prostitutes and whiskey and stuff. So the word got out and uh, Murray fired him and flew in to take over for the rest of the tour. And on the way to the airport to pick Murray up in a rented car, Brian said, hey, let's all get pipes." And when dad gets in the car, we'll roll all the windows up and we'll all light our pipes. You know, because Murray was an avid pipe smoker, right? And at that time, Brian couldn't stand smoke at all. he was like very, you know, against it. And uh, so anyway, Murray got in the car at the airport and we started driving to our next gig in Chicago. I don't know where York, me? And I don't know how it happened, but Murray was sitting shotgun and I was right behind him in the back seat. And We got into some kind of a stupid argument. I don't know. I was a disrespectful kid and uh, Murray was all business. So he, he took the opportunity at that time when we started making really big money to try to get me out so he could form a family corporation. So he used intimidation and all the tricks against a 15-year-old to, you know, Mm. carry him out of the band. It didn't work because, you know, we had several contracts for the upcoming year for concerts and stuff. So I had to stick that out. Mm. But as time went on, I was more adamant about leaving because in the meantime, I got my own band together Mm. And I was writing my own songs and Murray was putting the pressure on me, you know, and my mom, she fancied herself as my manager, but she didn't know what the heck she was doing. Poor girl. <laughs> and so Murray just rolled all over us because he was very savvy in the business world. And on the other hand, I'm very thankful to Murray for, you know, yeah. all the fun stuff and things i got from being involved with the beach boys and the wilson family they gave me a musical education a chance to see the world you know stuff thank god i moved in across from the wilson's i'll tell you that
1: absolutely it's amazing how it pans out after this period where murray was holding you to that there was the period in time where you were still doing some recordings with the group as well as touring because be True to Your School, I think, was in that era where you'd quit the band, but you were still with the band?
2: Yeah, there were some recordings that we did. Capitol put an enormous amount of pressure on Brian, like two albums a year, right? That's, that's like, nuts. That's why Surfing USA album was most half-instrumental, and in, you know, a lot of them Dick Dale songs. But for the most part, Brian would be walking down the hall and he'd see a cuckoo clock and go, hey, I'm going to write a song about that cuckoo clock. Hmm because he needed all this material. Mm. And most of it was silly. The music was kind of sophisticated, but the words were really kind of silly. People liked it, you know, it was happy. And so we were trying to poop out two albums a year, and a lot of the material leaked over into After I Left the Band, into like the um, Shut Down Volume 2 album. Some of the songs I was on before made it to that album, because that was like the next album after I quit the band, in quotes, quit the band. I just stopped showing up. I didn't know it, but I still owned a fifth of the band and the trademark. I didn't lose that until 1972. When some
3: loud bragger tries to put me down and says his school is great, I tell him right away, now what's the matter, buddy? Ain't you heard of my school? It's number one in the state. Hey, hey, take it away. It's so ball I got for football and track, I'm proud to wear it now when I cruise around the other parts football game
1: There may have been play guitar on Don't Worry Baby which was after the period that you definitely left the group and that was a, a session kind of helmed by Brian Buttson. I Butson. stopped
2: doing road tours with the band and kept on going to the school that Carl and I were going to and after school I'd go over to where Brian was living down the street from my school after school almost every day and the band in the meantime was on the road Al Jardine took Brian's place on the road, singing the high falsetto parts and playing the bass, which happened way before I left, actually. And we thanked him for that because Brian didn't want to tour. And so Al saved the day, you know. But yeah, Brian took me in the studio a few times. One of the times he says, I want you to play lead on something. And I was all excited, right? Because Carl was usually doing most of the leads. And so I got to the studio and he had me do these like chop chords, like boom. Bomp, bump on E, right? And then A, boom, boom. And I said, is that it? (laughs) I thought it was one of Brian's practical jokes because he did that a lot, you know, because I thought I was going to be able to show off my chops and do all my, you know, fancy lead stuff. And he had me doing those chords in the um, the guitar break in Don't Worry Baby, which became iconic. But at the time, it was like I was pissed because I wanted to do my fancy Eric Clapton riffs, you know? Although I didn't know who he was then.
1: Mentioned it before, is about your own band and a band and whose music has, has had a, quite a lot of, of renaissance, really, playing on, on TV shows uh, these days and airplay on the radio. And that's Dave and the Marksman. And we have I Wanna Cry, and that seems to combine that US but also a, a British influence as well.
2: Yeah, during the last days with touring the Beach Boys and recording with the Beach Boys, Dennis sprained his ankle. And he couldn't do our next, you know, upcoming gigs. So Carl had a friend at Hawthorne High named Mark Grossclose, who was Carl's buddy, who was a, an excellent drummer. So Carl got him to fill in for Dennis on maybe two or three gigs, right? Yeah. But that was it. And then Mark went back to his band, which was called the Jaguars because they all played Fender Jaguars, and it was in a garage across the street from Mark's house. So I liked the way Mark played with us on those few gigs that he was sitting in for Dennis. And so I went to the Jaguars rehearsal in the garage and said, hey, I'm taking over the band and it's now going to be called, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they agreed because I happened to have been writing some pretty cool songs that Brian didn't want to have anything to do with because I wasn't really that respected because I was, you know, what, 15? I don't know, 14. 15. Yeah. And, you know, Brian had this Electric surge going through him of genius, so and you know people like Gary usher and those guys were his own age, and they had a communications thing go on a rapport so i did, I couldn't hope to co-write with Brian when I yeah so I went off and, and, and uh, commandeered this garage band and called him Dave and the marksman and uh, the guy who named the Beach Boys, Russ Regan, was a promotion man that Murray hired to promote the band. Uh, he liked my band, The Marksman, so he got me a deal on A&M Records, which is actually the... Uh, we were the first band signed to A&M. Well, technically the second, because the first band was Herb Alpert's Tijuana Brass, who owned the label. <laughs> so we recorded some tunes for them, and they put them out, and we did a couple of tours around, well, the whole state of California, which is almost like a country in itself. Yeah. And then... That bombed pretty well because I heard rumors that Murray blackballed my record from being played on the radio because when he heard me practicing across the street was the time when he was really feuding with his son, Brian, because Brian didn't want his dad to be involved musically or in the production of the records. So Murray scampered across the street to try to commandeer my band to compete with Brian, which was absurd, of course. And I said, no, Marie, you know, you're like one of the reasons I quit the Beach Boys. So, you know, get the fuck out of here, right? <laughs> <laughs> so he was pissed and he got the Sunrays, which actually he hired me to do some sessions for the Sunrays too. That was another band that, you know, he got to try to compete with Brian. Yeah. So that was a result of me being rude to him and turning him down. He would tell the DJs in L.A. that if you play Dave Marx's record, then you won't get the new Brian Wilson release. I'll give it to the other station. You know, and he'd tell all the stations mm-hmm. that. So, Actually, it was um, Roger Christian, who was a uh, DJ on one of the biggest stations in L.A. at the time, who co-wrote some songs with Brian Deuce Coop and Shut Down. He was the one who leaked that rumor about you know Murray blackballing me, so he would know although I have no hard feelings because I didn't find out until I was an adult, so big deal, right? Yeah.
1: And I Want to Cry Itself, is that a Rickenbacker that I hear?
2: Yes, it is. And that song, yes, you're right. We started doing fusion, surf English invasion <laughs> fusion because the Beatles had just came out. I remember going outside of my house and Carl was getting in his car and he'd go, hey, you know, Carl, he got us all to go to this JC Brings haircutting place in Hollywood where we got a poofter job on our hair with spray lacquer and all that crap. So I didn't want to put up with that. So I just wash it and let it hang. Ironically, it looked like a Beatles haircut and Carl goes, Hey, you look like one of the Beatles. And I went, "Who? what the hell is a beetle? But the next day we went up to San Francisco. Carl said, Hey, the, the hard days night movie came out in San Francisco. You know, it's the first place it came out. So we took a plane up there to watch that movie. And, um, Of course, it changed our lives, especially for Brian when he heard Rubber Soul. But yeah, I went back and applied what I had learned to my band, and what came out after "I Want to Hold Your Hand." It was about the first year of the Beatles, you know, big success in the U.S. And uh, at first, I hated it because there was no reverb on the guitars. But then I learned to love it after hearing it for a while, and I tried to incorporate it into my band with surf music, which is kind of weird. I mean, it didn't really work. It didn't mix very well. It was like Jeff Beck playing with Brian Wilson on a tour or something like that, you know?
4: Just the same. I've had plenty of time to think, and I haven't slept a wink.
2: And we had a great time in the Marksman. We did two tours of California. With, uh, the second one was a review with Eddie and the Showman and Kathy Marshall, the queen of the surf guitar. and yeah. We had a ball. But um, After that, the drummer from Marksman, Mark Groskos, Carl's friend from high school, and I joined a band called a Band Without a Name, which wow. was with Eddie Haddad and his brother Albert and their cousin Dennis. And they sang, and they you know had musicians backing them up, and Eddie sang like the King of Soul. We ended up just being Casey Kasem's backup band, would go out and do gigs at high schools and stuff and back up all the the hit singers of the day that didn't have their own band, because uh, we went out and did a couple of tunes and then would back up the whole show. Um, And we did a couple of recordings, but nothing happened with those either. And then it was my old friend Terry Hand, the drummer in Eddie and the Showman, Introduced me to Matt Moore because they were affiliated with the same record label, White Whale Records, which actually our old friends from Westchester near the airport in L.A., they were called, I think they were the Crossfires or something. Um, We'd have the Battle of the Bands at uh, P.O.P. in Santa Monica. But uh, they ended up being the Turtles and they were on White Whale, too. And so was Warren. Warren Zavon was on White Whale. So that's how I met him also. So anyway, Matt liked the way I played, and um, he had a friend, Larry Brown, who was connected with Mike Kerr, who was now a Nashville mogul. Uh, But at that time, he was a lawyer, (laughs) so he gave us the key to his studio. He had a thing called Caduceus Workshop, and we did two albums, and it was uh, called The Moon on Liberty Records unfortunately liberty records was in the process of going belly up so the the airplay that it was getting on the east coast and midwest kids couldn't buy it because liberty couldn't distribute it or promote it so anyway that was unfortunate because that was a pretty good band
1: when you listen to material like give me more use again albeit the sound had moved on this that beatles pepper element to it
2: it did it had bgs i think yeah matt was influenced but Matt Moore he was a genius, or he might still be. I don't know. He doesn't call me anymore, but at that time, those songs were really cool and they just adapted to our musicianship perfectly. We actually took a whole bunch of LSD, okay? Yeah. And then sat down in the recording professional, you know, state of the art recording studio and put on the album Sgt. Pepper. Now we had access to all of this, like, huge. You know, studio monitors, Lansing, JBLs. And, and then we had all of this EQ stuff on the on the sliders with the, on the board, you know, the console. And uh, yeah. we could adjust the sound. We could pull out a guitar. We could just eliminate certain frequencies and pull out the guitar or, you know, bury the guitar because we turn down the frequencies and then I turn up the drums. So it was a very cool experience probably wouldn't have done it without the psychedelic drugs, but yes, Matt Moore was very influenced by that album, yeah.
4: sunny day, I've not met you, but I know you anyway, I feel the warmth of your wine, leaving the winter behind, ah, but it's cold outside your door.
1: You're on lead vocals on Brother Lou's Love Colony.
2: Brother Lou's Love Colony and um, She's On My Mind. Those songs were written by Gary Montgomery and Jack Dalton, who had a band called The Colors. And some of the members in The Colors were my old surf buddy band guys, like Robbie Edwards from the Eddie and the Shulman band. And, ah. and I became very, very close friends with Gary and Jack. Ended up being some of my very best friends. And... Um, I did an album, their second album with them, The Colors. I don't know. We were trying experimental stuff. I, I just improvised over all their songs. Some of it, I don't know, <laughs> might be annoying, but some of it's brilliant. I don't know. But we did a few live gigs, too, Seattle and Oregon and those kinds of, you know, Portland, those places. And uh, it didn't last long. That was on Dodd, I think. But, see, I was in on that because of uh, Matthew Moore's big brother daniel moore who actually wrote the hit song my maria and he he worked with kim Carnes, and he wrote shambhala by three dog night Hmm. and um it was a big producer he produced i got a lot of work because danny would hire me to play guitar on all the Christie minstrels were all doing a solo album so we got a lot of work out of that but yeah danny introduced me to jack and gary and i'm gary's daughter anna's godfather and he died and yeah. but he he left behind some brilliant brilliant music so yeah he just dropped by the studio one day when we were recording moon stuff and he played us those songs and we fell in love with him and and Matthew says well i didn't write though so why don't you sing a lead hmm. <laughs> and i also played bass on those songs too oh wow actually yeah, yeah. it was uh It was a very fun time. We lived in that studio. We had pizza boxes and oxygen tanks and stuff because we didn't know what day or night or what month it was. We'd stay in there and just record.
1: quite a bit of session work in the 70s and your guitar sound became a bit more sophisticated.
2: Yeah, that was thanks to Matthew's older brother, Daniel Moore. He would hire me for sessions and as a result, I would meet some of the best musicians in the world. Jim Keltner, there's a list, you know, Delaney Bramlett, um, Leon Russell, yeah. if the list goes on, he gave me a chance to play with all these guys. James Booker, geez, I don't know. Daniel liked the way I played guitar. It touched him. He thought I was soulful. So he had hired me for a lot of stuff. And then when I left to go to Boston, I lost my studio status to Greg Beck, who was sort of a, an understudy, but a brilliant guitarist. And Daniel started hiring him because I was out, you know, I was in Boston. So, you know, when I came back from Boston after two years or so, I, I was surprised to see that I wasn't able to
1: pick up where I left off. People took my place. The Beach Boys just seemed to be something which you, your path seemed to cross occasionally with the band or Mike Love and then sometimes Mike had asked you to potentially come back in the band or, or that kind of thing and it seemed to happen every single decade and then by the late 90s you, you were back with the group for a few years.
2: Well, it turns out that like the mafia, you can't really leave the Beach (laughs) Boys except in a pine box. (laughs) Tried to disassociate myself but how can you do that when it's your whole basis of your being? You started doing it when you were 10, you know, with those people across the street. So it's just part of me and I can't really, you know, shake it. So I, I learned how to, you know, just accept it for what it is. Yeah. When you know Mike started pestering me to be back in the band in the early 90s, which I ended up doing and I'm glad I did. Yeah. But yeah, even before that, like through the 60s and 70s and 80s, I would always end up sitting in with them somewhere or going to Brian's house for something or other. You know, it's like mm. you really can't cut that big of a part of your life you can't just snip it off and forget it, which I tried to do and it just didn't work out, so I just like
1: <laughs> Al Jardine's someone who some people seem to think that there there might be an issue between you and Al, but actually that I don't think that's the case and, and you um you were on his solo album a decade ago and the track Driving with Brian Wilson. That must have been a really nice moment where Al invited you to record on one of his solo tracks. <laughs>
2: Well, Al and I started off kind of on the wrong foot. He was Brian's age, hmm. kind of an adult. And I'm like 14 or 15 or whatever. And I'm squirting, you know, pee in his ear with a squirt gun at the airport. Was well, Dennis's idea, by the way. <laughs> with, mixed with soap, I might add. <laughs> anyway, you know, it just a big annoyance. Like Al was thinking, what is this stupid kid doing here, right? <laughs> Until I started playing guitar then. Hmm. But then somehow... Well, let me just start by saying I mentioned this a little while ago where Al Jardine saved the day. We thought when Brian decided not to tour with us anymore and stay home and write songs and produce records with other people, some of the times, um, we thought we were through. I mean, how can a band exist in in the 60s without going out on the road and promoting their albums, right? So Al stepped back in. Al was on the first record, Surfing played the upright bass and you know sang and yes. brian hit the snare with his finger and carl played an unplugged electric guitar and audrey sang backgrounds or whatever and so when brian decided to quit touring bands, he'd still do live performances on tv or at the hollywood bowl but for the most part al came back and toured with us and saved the day he he played brian's bass parts and sang brian's falsetto parts brilliantly yeah. sounded like brian and um and saved our asses, because then we were able to go out and tour and promote our records while Brian stayed home and you know wrote, wrote songs and produced records, rightfully so. That was his first love. And then Al came back to do some vocals and a little bass playing on the Surfer Girl album. So I imagine I could safely say there are six Beach Boys, not seven or nine. I mean... Ricky and Blondie were only there for a minute, you know one of Carl's whims, but they are brilliant and I love them both, but
0: hmm.
2: and then you know Bruce, he's a beach boy, but he didn't go, he didn't join the band until like, you know, they were almost fizzled out in the early 70s, I guess, or late 60s, whatever, but Bruce is very talented, he's one of the best piano, you know, voice leading arrangers there is and you really can't tell it that much by going to a beach boys concert. Well, you can hear his songs he wrote, you know, and and tell how talented he is.
1: A lovely moment where Al invited you and Brian to record on his album. Yeah. You know, when I got back playing and
2: touring with the band in the the 90s, Al was like still kind of like, what are you doing here? What happened? You know, because he was clueless Hmm. and Mike was plotting against him behind his back. Um, so he didn't know what the heck I was doing there. You know, I didn't either. I was, I was being used as a pawn. I didn't know what I was doing there. You know, and in the meantime, I'm creating bad vibes. But it just so happened that Al Jardine and myself decided that there's really no reason for us to be adversaries. There's like some kind of a thing that happened behind our backs going out and having fun without us. And we suddenly realized we're not adversaries, you know? Yeah. And so we just joined up and uh, he liked the way I played as a man and forgot about the squirt gun incident, you know, <laughs> and we became very close. We rode on the tour bus, you know, throughout the 50th. And and then when we played with, you know, the uh, the Jeff Beck, Brian Wilson fiasco and the, the Brian tour before that, actually, too. Yeah. And then um, I was very honored to have him ask me to play on his uh, solo stuff and you know to have Brian on the record too that was exciting and um and I had him sing on one of my desktop things I was trying at home and um we just realized there's there's no reason I mean we never really feuded he accused me of stealing his band at uh, one time, that I, I explained to him that you know, we're professionals and when there's work. <laughs> so yeah, we're pretty good friends. He calls me every now and then to see how I'm doing, you know. Driving. We were
3: driving up the coast just the other day. Trying to find a place just to get away We were driving Yeah, driving
4: Driving 101, making real good time Gotta make the Ventura County line We were driving Yeah, we were driving
3: At Hollister Ranch, we made a big tube ride I ain't driving, keep on driving Another hundred miles up to Morro Bay Gonna surf the rock, has got the biggest waves Gone surfing, body surfing
4: Since we left, the price of gas is way too high. Had to sell the wood again, it's a ride. We're not driving, just surviving. They dropped us off in the pouring rain, and we had to take a ride home.
3: Save my pennies, save my dimes. BP, you're killing me, man. I love driving.
1: It must have been even, even more special when all the surviving founder members of the Beach Boys got together to record That's Why God Made the Radio, And on the 50th anniversary as well.
2: Yeah, you know, it was a little bittersweet. On one hand, it was the most, you know, the best thing that's happened to me in a really, really long time. On the other hand, it was anticlimactic and slightly disappointing because it didn't continue. We were having, we were getting offers. Yeah. I mean, we're only supposed to do 50 gigs, right? Because it's the 50th anniversary and blah, blah, blah. But then suddenly, we started getting offers from Europe and Asia pouring in, and we ended up doing almost 80 gigs on that um, 50th anniversary tour, and then and Capital wanted us to do another album, and yeah. offers for shows kept pouring in, and hey, this is it, guys, you know? And then Mike decided that he was making more money with just him <laughs> and Bruce, and refused to do any of it, because I think he might have had a pretty good reason i mean he didn't have any control really over the touring thing mm. he was disappointed because he didn't get to be with brian as much and and he was losing money let's face it i mean it is a business that's what murray wilson you know drove into us mm. when we were kids so i mean i don't think people should demonize mike for that especially about it was a little disappointing, you know, for me because I didn't have anything else going at the time. So I went to Egypt and went in the Great Pyramid.
1: It was a very successful record as well, especially the single. Well, it was, I think, a hype.
2: I don't know if it sold many, but it was you can do anything with the media. And I think uh, the the public was tricked into thinking it was bigger than it really was. <laughs> we had to go on QBC to sell the stuff. Gosh. But it might have sold some. I don't know. It really wasn't typical Beach Boys. I think the song was good. Um, it was written by nine people who weren't really affiliated with any of the Beach Boys. Yeah. But I, I did like the song. It started off like silhouette, 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 silhouette. silhouette. Remember that yeah. song back in the fifties? Probably not old enough, but hmm. do, 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 do. that was a, a rip off from the fifties tune. Um but I liked it, you know. I I thought that it could have been a potential great vehicle for Brian, but I don't think Brian was that involved with it. It just, he was there just to okay stuff. Is that okay, Brian? Yeah, just give me some R candy.
4: Seven, push button heaven, capturing memory. No Like a friend.
1: it about the 50th anniversary tour you sang uh, get your back
2: yeah i had never heard of that really because i wasn't really up with the beach boys catalog other than the stuff i played on and shortly after that and and mike said that when they did that tune he he really had dennis in mind to sing it because dennis had more of a i guess a soulful rough voice for that you know kind of style so he thought that i kind of sounded like him a little bit and assigned me for that because he wrote it mike wrote it
1: and even after that Fiftieth anniversary tour. Mike would sometimes invite you as a special guest to play live with um, him and Bruce.
2: Yeah, I did a couple of tours with Mike after that. Yeah, and God bless him too, because he had to sneak me out on the road because powers that be weren't really approving of that, and I really needed it at the time. And God bless him, he bailed me out and gave me a few dates with him on the tour, and. Uh, very grateful for that he saved my life a couple of different times i remember when we were in hawaii playing for a month touring and i was i don't know 14 or 15 whatever and and i was kind of drinking a lot and i remember going to mike's hotel room drunk and he was talking to some girl out on the balcony so i sat on the railing on the balcony and started to go over It was several stories up, I would have been dead for sure, but he grabbed my ankle, and he didn't miss a sentence or a word with the girl he was talking to. He didn't even look at me. He just, in his peripheral vision, grabbed my ankle and said, watch it, kid. And I would have been, like, dead if he hadn't done that. (laughs) So he has literally saved my life a few times.
1: Talked about Al Jardine's project with you and Brian, but Brian invited you and Al on his song "The Right Time." So right. that was after the the Beach Boys material.
2: Yeah, there was another song too. I forgot the name of it. There was two songs, I think.
1: Yeah, that was really cool. Another gift
2: that yeah. I couldn't have dreamt of, but you know, when you're in your late 60s and, and you're going back with, you know, your childhood friends to do a a song in the studio is really cool, you know, and uh, I guess those tunes got some acclaim, you know.
1: You seem to be um a unifying figure in the you seem to be able to shift from playing with Mike to recording with Brian. <laughs> That's a really nice thing.
2: Yeah, Well, you have to remember that these are my childhood friends. I know they're much older than I am, but they were the only people that I had when I was a little kid and I learned a lot from them. Not all good, but you know, they were in my influence when I was growing up, um, being raised by Dennis Wilson and Mike Love. But yeah, I never really screwed any of those guys over because I didn't have, I wasn't in the position to. I never sued anybody, and I, you know, didn't have any arguments about writers' royalties or any of that. So I stayed out of all that crap. Yeah. And as a result, I was still able to be able, I was able to stay on good terms with most of the people and you know involved, my bad mates which is great you know because uh, i love all of them and so i wouldn't want to have any adversities with any of those guys and uh yeah so um and luckily, they you know view me as sweet and <laughs>
3: happening like changing places with someone in the back of the line but not
1: Days, is to talk about Surf City All-Stars a band that you um, have recorded with and also play live with and you've got some forthcoming dates that we'll cover in a second but um, the next track is the Surf City All-Stars version of Little Juice Coop Do you want to tell us about that band?
2: Yes, that band is made up of former Beach Boys band Sidemen guys John Stamos recommended Philip Bardowell for the Beach Boys when Carl left and Carl handpicked Philip because um, he's a genius and um plays and sings brilliantly and um, so he's one of the all stars. Um, David Logaman runs the band. he's the manager and the booking agent. He's the drummer, and he played with Frank Zappa and Mike Love and uh, one of the best drummers in the world, one like my favorite drummer. I used him in my blues you know band uh, back in Atlanta many years ago, and then well, Gary Griffin started off doing keyboards and singing. He was the guy in the uh, Full House band with mm. John Stamos. And yeah. He's very talented. Worked for Brian a lot. I think, you know, whenever Brian goes out before the uh, pandemic happened, uh, it was with Gary. So we had to replace him with Aaron. You know, Al and and um, and Matt Jardine used to be in the band with us and still they they started going out with Brian quite a bit um, on bass Chris Farmer who was the musical director for the Beach Boys for many 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 years when I started back with them in the 90s Chris was there playing bass and singing brilliantly and he almost looks like a Wilson
1: mm. I guess that's the whole band yeah even on that track and On your forthcoming live show, Dean, Torrance of Jan and Dean will be there as
2: well. Yeah, sometimes Dean goes out alone with the All-Stars. Sometimes I go out alone with the All-Stars. But most of the time we go out together, Dean and I both. We're big in Texas and Pennsylvania and Chicago and, of course, you know, Huntington Beach and those kinds of places. And before the the virus, we were doing maybe two or three gigs a month, which is perfect for me. Yeah. Because I'm getting old. But um, we do great versions of Beach Boys hits. I mean, those guys know that stuff in and out and um, better than I do. So I'm glad that they started calling me for gigs. Probably 15 years ago, I started working with them. When I wasn't on the road with the Beach Boys, I'd, I'd, I'd have something to do with uh, the Surf City All Stars. And, you know, they started off, those guys, with Jan and Dean. They were Jan and Dean's backup band for a long, long time. Uh, and then of course, you know, Jan died and everything. And so that's why Dean is with us a lot of the time because he was an original member, you know, with those guys before they started playing with the Beach Boys even. So, but it's a, it's a good mix of musicians and and very talented, great singers. And I mean, they might even be better than, (laughs) no, I'm not going to say that, but it's really a good show. It's exciting. The music's really, it's not stale. It's exciting, like for the first time.
1: I think, COVID permitting, you've got two dates in Pennsylvania coming up, um, one on August the 27th at the Community Arts Centre in Williamsport and uh, on August 28th at the Mishler Theatre in Altoona. Near the college, Penn State.
2: Yeah, um our, our our gigs are slowly coming back. They're reinstating, you know, these are these are guys that can't, had to cancel and these two in Pennsylvanians, so they came back and rescheduled. So that's great. I hope the rest of them do.
1: I guess given the situation could change. People can check out surfcityallstars.com and and, and keep a track of forthcoming shows.
2: That's right. And there's also davidleemarks.com too that that'll have the information on there. <laughs>
4: I can't ever enough for you. She's my
1: Before we go, I thought um, a really good track to finish on would be the David Marks featuring the a version of Custom Car Show. Um, <laughs> do, first of all, do you want to tell us about the what, what led up to recording with the a
2: Yeah, the a are Spanish guys from Spain. Now, I guess Franco didn't allow any music in for a long time. So they're just now catching up. And now surf music is all the craze over there. Or at least it was, you know, five years ago. But they invited me to something called Surferama, which is a little thing they have every year with surf bands. And they invite certain guest stars like Eddie Bertrand and the and Eddie and the Shawmen and uh, those kinds of guys, like surf band guys from L.A. in the 60s. And they happened to like my stuff and they learned it better than I know it hmm. and better than the original band had it. They just nailed it with the dual showman, Fender dual showmans and, and the outboard reverb units and the, and the Jaguars with the flat wound strings. It was, everything was there, you know, and it was great. So we did about 10 dates. We toured Spain and packed the bars in the streets mm. <laughs> and it was it was a great experience only one time experience I don't think we could pull that off again but uh, man the people were so sweet and, and nice over there and and you know sometimes the shows didn't start until like 1 in, in the morning 1am out in, in the middle of a street that they had uh, you know barricaded off it was cool uh, the Spanish in Spain is you know one of my loves right. the aphonics would do an occasional show in LA or California somewhere so they stopped by a friend of mine's studio in the San Fernando Valley and we recorded that. Some Beach Boys tunes that I was on and some of the Dave and the Marksman tunes and released a CD on that.
1: That song in particular, Custom Casho, dates way back even when you oh, were yeah, Beach Boys.
2: Yeah, I co-wrote that with Mark Gross Close, Carl's friend from Hawthorne High. And every time I would present a song to Brian or anybody, Audrey would giggle. <laughs> hmm. it would kind of set me back a few notches like hmm. she was kind of like ridiculing it, and her like that's so silly for a 12 year old 13 year old but you know it wasn't any more stupid than the B- brian's songs about shifts and cuckoo clocks and it had that beat. yeah definitely if you listen to it now it could have been on a beach boys album but like i said before they i wasn't being taken all that seriously it's like Persecution against it's an age thing, you know. that oh, all the guys, 12, you know, can't do any of his songs. It might have been some of Murray's influence too. I don't know. But even Carl, he was doing a little writing. He couldn't get in either.
1: So. David, what can I say? It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. What a remarkable body of music that you have the Beach Boys with David the Marksman with the Moon and all the uh, projects that you've been doing over the last couple of decades i wish you all the best with the forthcoming shows with the surf city all-stars as well so thank you
2: well it was a pleasure it was a great uh, thing to do on a wednesday afternoon i had nothing else to do and i appreciate you and i thank you very much talk to you anytime you know
1: it's a it's a real pleasure thank you so much uh, do take care
2: my pleasure take care right, talk soon
1: bye-bye bye-bye There's nothing more exciting than the sparkle of chrome
4: Like I'm a beatnik bandit with a clear glass dome The showboats and trophies